Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional, and it's sponsored by The Career Hub. The Career Hub is powered by Goslin Martin Associates. Check it out off of our main website at goslinassociates.com, or you can link to it directly at careers.goslin-associates.com. Just one um, quick advertisement before I introduce our guest for high reliability today. We have a number of jobs uh, across the country that are now, now open. We've got VP roles, we've got director of FM roles, we've got manager of FM roles. So if you want to check out our jobs page off of our main website, you can do that as well. It is certainly um, an active time in the job market. I think the the COVID lag is over. over. So um, that's exciting. So there's lots of opportunity there. We're not here to talk about jobs. I guess maybe indirectly we are. But today we welcome Nicholas Durr, Associate AIA to the High Reliability Podcast. Nick is the Project Development Leader for the Facility Optimization Solutions, FOS, a subsidiary of Canon Design, Nick works out of their Buffalo office. In his role, Nick leads facility condition assessments, strategic assessment investment planning, project development, capital planning, compliance, and life safety survey programs throughout the United States. Nick is a third-generation builder, architect, consulting facility planner, and software specialist. He's a design practitioner who partnered with several driven and diverse folks at Canon Design to chase this idea for a facility optimization firm. Nick's experience, passion, and leadership has helped propel the FOS team over the last decade from a small group to an industry-leading and world-ranked multi-office practice. Nick uses his love of architecture, economics, and statistics. Those are three things, by the way, that you would never associate with me architecture, economics, or statistics. But Nick uses his love for all three of those to fuel his approach to each campus or facility's unique challenges. His healthcare background experience is full cycle and includes community engagement, planning, design, construction, facility management services, decommissioning, and demolition. Nick grew up in rural New England and a family of builders. He earned his Bachelor's of Architecture from Syracuse University. Nick, welcome to High Reliability. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Thank you for uh, thank you for jumping in. So, if you didn't get it from the uh, intro, we're going to be talking about facility optimization solutions, what they are, why they're important, how it uh, how it connects with you, the healthcare facility professional. But Nick, you come from a family of builders. We just read your intro. So, from a family of builders, how and why did you gravitate to architecture over construction? And did your family approve? <laughs> oh, that's funny. They definitely approved. Um, as you said, I'm a third-generation uh, builder. Uh, and that started with both my grandfathers. Uh, they both learned their trades in the U.S. Navy. Uh, oh. One was an MMC uh, on aircraft carriers and destroyers. So he's basically a facility manager on a facility that can sink. Uh, so mm -hmm. definitely a high-pressure job. Uh, after, after that, he went into facilities management. Uh, and my other grandfather was a, a CB, a construction battalion, also in the Navy. Yeah. Uh, so he learned his trade there. Uh, that's the business my father grew up in. Uh, when my parents started their business in the early 70s, uh, that was really the culture that, that they brought and that I grew up in. So I grew up on job sites. I grew up you know, as a general contractor, uh, learning all the parts and pieces and you know, stepping in when something needed to be done. 
so that was really my experience. Um, my natural talents and interests were in drawing and painting. Uh, so when I was 18, I was an artist and a carpenter, and I thought that's what an architect was. <laughs> um, today, I know that we're writers, we're researchers, uh, we're diplomats, uh, analysts, strategic planners, uh, and salesmen. Yeah. But what really came down to, uh, I think for all of us, was quality of life. Um, construction is extremely brutal, uh, you know, in terms of your body. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all my uncles, uh, my father, um, these are not guys that are, you know, playing pickup basketball or kayaking or, you know, going snorkeling with their kids. Uh, it's just a tremendous toll. And um, my parents wanted, you know, to push me for that better life next generation. Huh. Interesting. So was um, your parents from, were they uh, commercial construction, home construction? What type of construction was it? Uh, my parents uh, is residential primarily, and my father grew up in commercial. So it was sort of a, sort of a blend. Okay. Where in New England did you grow up? Uh, Hartford, uh, ah. uh, Sims, Simsbury, Connecticut, uh, which is right near that little notch uh, between Massachusetts and Connecticut. Much yes. contested notch. Yeah, it is. Well, I, you know, I'm in New England. I'm just in Walpole, Mass. And so I always think that anything to the west of Hartford is New York and anything <laughs> Hartford East is New England. So I think I'm kicking you out of New England, aren't I? Yeah, I think, that's how, uh, <laughs> I think that's what the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox think, too. Absolutely. I mean, that's really house to house in Connecticut. Just to the uh just to the northwest. So that that's interesting. I was, you know, for whatever reason, I was envisioning you northern New England, and maybe it's because you ended up going to Syracuse, but uh, just outside Hartford. So in in commercial construction, um, when did you start going out to the field and, and were you kind of like an apprentice who evolved into carpentry and painting and whatever was needed? What, what's your first memory of, of that experience? Oh, yeah, that was super young. Um, getting picked up after school to help clean up job sites. You know, you know, first it's stacking lumber, uh, then it's counting lumber, then it's understanding the relationship of, well, if you have too much lumber, it means you're behind schedule. If you don't have enough lumber, it means you're, you know, have a supply problem. Um, so really, um, you know, from a very young age, summers, uh, school breaks, uh, learning how to do really every piece of it. Do you think, um, you know, it's interesting, you can often connect things from back when you're little up to maybe when you're, you're older, but you know, you talk about, we read in the intro, your love of architecture, economics, and statistics and planning. Do you think that's when you first, even if you didn't realize it at the time, started gravitating because you talked about the lumber you have and, and being able to plan. Do you trace your roots that far back relative to what you enjoy doing now in that logistics planning? Yeah, I think that I do. You know, I remember um, driving around in the truck. I feel like I got an MBA in the front seat of that truck talking about scheduling, <laughs> talking about um, labor crews, talking about sequencing. Um, it really goes back that far uh, in terms of uh, putting a work plan together and um, really understanding what it's going to take to put a building in the ground and then uh, eventually to uh, put a plan together to take care of it. Mm. Interesting. So you talk about, or we talked about, the facility optimization solution. So let's fast forward, you know, a number sure. of years now. You've got, um, you know, the project development leader for the facility optimization solutions, FOS. What is FOS and how is that relevant to our high reliability audience, to the people listening to this podcast? Sure. Uh, so FOS is an interdisciplinary group, uh, and that's really the most critical piece is uh, it takes all different backgrounds to do this work. Uh, effectively and efficiently. So I'm talking about, you know, field architects, uh, design and field engineers, former contractors, former facility managers, cost estimators, software and analysts. It's that multi-lens approach to planning, 
uh, and executing uh, real changes in the built infrastructure. So that's what our team is. And the way that we really go after the industry is looking at those those four corners. So we can say that, you know, we understand design and construction. We understand facilities management. We understand finance and we understand technology and tools. And that's really what makes us different is putting that team together, a very intentional team uh, to solve challenges facing existing buildings. So we are uh, a consulting facilities group uh, with really a, a ton of services, uh, you know, one of our primary services is facility condition assessments because we have to make the data uh, in order to be able to have data to analyze and make choices. Uh, we do a lot of capital plans, CMMS integrations, software builds, software integrations, mm-hmm. cost estimating, uh, and job order contracting. Our, our motto here is we do that. Uh, you know, we know that FMs all over the country are you know, tasked more than ever uh, with doing more with less. And we're that you know, extra firepower, extra brain power uh, to help get that big project done. How many other FOS groups are there in the country? You know, I think there's probably a handful um, that do this at a very high level Mm -hmm. um, in terms of providing custom solutions. Uh, It is really an an intersection of all of those traits. Uh, It is, I think, unique and rare. Um, What attracts me to it personally is that the challenge is always changing. There's really nothing static about this work. Um, Every client is different. Every challenge is different. Um, the needs, the schedule, um, helping people really take stock of what they have, you know, make good projects, make good decisions, help them get the budgets that they need. You know, the number one of the number one things I always go back to is, you know, securing capital dollars for infrastructure reinvestment, you know, being able to make that pitch to get the resources that you need uh, to do your job. Are you, you know, as I was listening to you describe what it is, it, are you, and I apologize if this is just a dumb question, but it almost, are you your own integrated project delivery system? Um, you know, I think that we are everything you need right before the project. So okay. I would say that with job order contracting, when we're actually taking uh, the deficiencies, the found items, you know, we're building the projects, building the capital plan. That's where we do get to the point where we're delivering projects. We work with our uh, parent company, Canna Design, uh, in a lot of our efforts to help people, you know, partner people with the right providers for the design solutions. So we are pre-design uh, studies, strategic planning, uh, software, and, you know, building capital plans. We're, we're really far upstream. Uh, and that's where I think that projects are you know, made or broken way before people think that they do. You know, when a project falls apart, um, something happened in the planning phase that didn't account for that. So that's why I like to be uh, where I am, which is, you know, at the problem solution stage. And how big is your, how big is the, uh, how big is the group? There's about 40 of us today. Uh, We have offices in Buffalo. We have offices in uh, Houston. We have offices in Denver. Uh, we also have employees in Chicago, uh, in Boise, uh, Syracuse, and uh, we work with the network of Canada design offices to you know make sure that we can service the entire country. We've worked in uh, 39 states, three Canadian provinces. Uh, we work coast to coast. That's the other exciting thing about my job is there's a lot to, of opportunity to see the country. Yeah. Oh, probably not the last 15 months though, right? Not the last 15 months, <laughs> no. Our teams have been uh, fully deployed, but you know, I generally work with... Um, uh, you know, facility managers, project builders, uh, capital planners, and we've been mostly um, mostly zooming. 
Are you sick of Zoom yet? What's that? Are you sick oh, of yeah. Zooming? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my friend got a uh, in-person interview yesterday. I'm super jealous. My colleague and friend. <laughs> uh, I've done Zoom. I've done WebEx. I've done uh, Google Hangout Meets. I've done Teams. I've done Join Me, GoToMeeting, WebEx. I feel like I've done uh, a dozen different uh, applications in the last 16 months. Yeah, yeah, no. Sure you have. Let me, you know, um, as I listen to you talk, and I think you fo- you've started this within the last decade. I mean, you had the vision and over the last decade, you, you've going up and running. But how is it? I mean, you know that anything new, especially in healthcare facilities management, because w- what are we anywhere from 10 to 20 years behind the curve, you know, in, in other industries? How difficult sure. is it to deliver that message? And, and how do you go about because this is new and it's different, how do you go about conveying the message and and getting um, hospitals and systems to buy into this? You know, we're up you're up on the front end, clearing the path. How do you get how do you get the buy into that? And is it a difficult message to deliver? And how is it received? Sure, you know, I think that it really comes down to um, I don't want to say education but laying out some principles in terms of how do we collect this information? It's about the levels of detail and showing specific examples of, you know, here's what we sought out to do here. Here's the value proposition. And I think it's a lot of storytelling, Um, you know, letting folks know um, what we've been able to accomplish in the past, how we've been able to help people. You know, the challenges are, you know, I've said that they're unique, but they're also very similar. You know, lots of people are struggling with, you know, integrating their CMMS systems or they're struggling with asset tagging or they're struggling with, uh, you know, bringing a new building online. Um, we put a building in the ground in Delaware. Uh, it was a, a ground up hospital and we tagged and we um, put everything in BIM 360 as it was delivered to the field. So when that hospital was put together, you know, working with the construction manager, we're working you know, in the trailer and when that hospital went online, there was no downtime. There was no pulling FMs off of their day job to populate that building. You know, there was no O&M manual room. Everything was prevent, presented in a digital fashion. Uh, so when you can, you know, show people new ways of doing things or show them how um, you've been able to help someone else with a similar problem, uh, they take to it pretty quickly. Hmm. The, you know, you mentioned BIM, um, building information modeling. From a technology perspective, where, um, how technologically savvy does an organization need to be? I mean, you know that usually it's organizations, whether it's money or just time and commitment, are slow on the uptick to technologies. How do you help with that? How do you assist with that? How do you help an organization overcome some of those initial barriers to technolo- technology implementation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it starts with first defining goals. You know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And then looking at those systems, you know, what do you have in place now? Are you managing an Excel? You know, are you running pencil, paper, uh, work tickets? And looking at the various software solutions, because software is really just tools. Um, you know, you can have the nicest tool set in the world, but if you don't have the right mechanic, mm-hmm. uh, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and really, it's it's about combining that, uh, the tools and and finding the right people. Uh, so it's really a conversation with each person in terms of uh, where do they want to go, but also what's their infrastructure. Uh, if you're going to develop a system for someone, they have to have someone on staff to maintain that. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things we see a lot of clients ask for is, 
know, they want all their deficiencies marked on on floor plans. And you know that that may be well and good, but someone has to maintain that you know, over the course of time. I've been in, in hospitals that do 200 work orders a day. It's just not practical. Mm-hmm. You know, there's other better ways to you know you know use your door decks. Say you know here it is in room you know you know H123, um, and then say okay you know we're gonna you know look at asset tagging or we're gonna look at you know what are the the various systems? I think the number one thing that I see is that folks have multiple systems. Uh, some of those are complex. Some of those are simple. Um, but the big problem is that none of them are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the place where we get our software folks involved. Uh, I call it the, the spaghetti and meatball diagram where everyone has this big diagram up on the wall of, you know, here's this system, you know, here's, um, you know, Epic and here's um, an HR system and here's a, uh, you know, telemetry system and here's my CMS and here's GIS and just system after system after system. And then the lines are, you know, all of the hoops that they mainly have to go through to get these things to talk to each other to make a capital plan. Uh, so a lot of times it's really analyzing the process that a client uses and coming up with, you know, here are the, the critical steps. What are we capturing here? How is the system talking to this system? Can we build a bridge between these two systems to hopefully get to a point uh, where you're looking at one screen uh, and being able to run reports that can be compelling uh, and, you know, can tell a story and be convincing and help secure those dollars. So it sounds like you are able or you attempt to, and it, it's, it, it can happen. You're able to bridge those disparate systems and have them talk to each other or at least uh, interact with one another. So they're not siloed. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah. We have a, a distinct software products group inside of our, uh, our FOSS solutions team uh, that work with, uh, Existing systems, uh, designing interfaces, um, as well as um, uh, putting new products together uh, for the huh. market. So we have on staff uh, software designers, programmers, data analysts. We're really, again, coming from this at all sides because we really yeah. can't do it from one perspective. Right. Yeah, you've got a diverse group of folks who who work there. It's interesting. Um, you talked about organizations having multiple systems you talked about, you know, and we've worked with these organizations too that are still using pencil and paper to, to, to do work order management, PM management, and maybe sometimes they have the software, but like you said, they don't use it. Um, uh, how would you, and granted, this is just from your perspective with the FOS group, but with the clients you've worked with over the years, where do you see most hospitals and systems relative to technology? Are they using technology? Are they transitioning technology? Are they they left behind? Is there any commonality? Like if somebody said, how would you describe hospital and healthcare systems with their technology use? Is there is there a word or a common trait that have organizations have? Or are they all over the place? Um, I would say most of the folks that I've worked with are making progress. Hmm. Um, I would say that they've you know started taking critical steps. Um, you know. I don't think I've been in a pencil and paper uh, healthcare facility in a long time. Um, I've been in a lot of uh, facilities that manage with Excel, uh, mm-hmm. a lot that use, you know, um, big name uh, CMMS, uh, a lot that use, you know, smaller CMMS. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a um, a common sp- space or you know, you said behind the curve. I think that we're on the curve, at least the places that I'm working. And I think most people are really taking stock. And I think that they're being very 
uh, thoughtful about the, the software decisions that they make. So I think most people are, you know, taking, again, taking stock and saying, okay, we have this information and they're saying, what's the reliability of this information? And, mm-hmm. you know, how far can I move with that information? Do I need to reevaluate that? Or what other type of information that I need? Um, I think that we're making a lot of progress from a, from a data standpoint. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, uh, good RFPs in terms of asking for solutions. I'm seeing a lot of competition in the marketplace, you know, new ideas in CMMS. Um, I think it's, I think the needle's moving. I'm optimistic. Um, you know, I'm coming from the tech side and I'm, maybe I'm talking to people that are more interested in technology, but uh, the less people that we have to do all this work, the more tools we're going to need. And uh, yes. that's really where I'm coming from. So you just mentioned the word data, and obviously good decisions are based on on good data. What are some of the best approaches that facilities use or should use to collect good data? And if you could, I mean, I'm assuming you folks help with the collection of good data, but sure. say that there's an organization that's just out there on their own, struggling, working, they haven't found your FOS group, what are some best approaches for folks who are just out there on their own to collect good data? What what works? What doesn't work? The number one thing that I would recommend to anyone is to conduct a pilot. Um, and what I mean when I say that is whether you're doing something in-house, whether you have you know a, a vendor or multiple vendors or partners, take one facility or take a representative cross-section of facilities and take that project all the way through at a small scale. Uh, it's no different than a construction mock-up. You want to take it all the way through. You want to walk around it. You want to talk about the quality. You want to talk about the level of detail. You want to talk about the questions that it can and cannot answer, uh, and then refine and repeat that process. I think there's really nothing worse than trying to take a blanket approach uh, and learning things you missed when you're done. Do you have a good, can you give me an example of like what you might conduct a, a pilot on? Sure. So I think that a good pilot would be saying, okay, we're going to do um, an assessment of your uh, power generation, um, you know, an administration building, uh, a hospital bed tower, um, and maybe a clinic. So you have a, a cross section of all the types of spaces. And what you really want to do is bring everyone to the table at that day one. You want to talk about, okay, are we looking at clinical considerations? Are we looking at medical equipment? Are we looking at uh, all trades, mechanical, electrical, plumbing? Uh, are we looking at interiors? Are we looking at um, interior standards? Or do we are we not there yet with interior standards? Do we simply need to look at the condition? Uh, so I think the, the second thing I would emphasize is bringing everyone to the table early. And that includes your software vendors, because they're going to have data markers that they want to carry. And if they're engaged late, you're going to have to do rework, and you're just not going to get where you want fast enough. Is there any shortcut to collecting good data? Because I'm just thinking, you know, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm sure there's FMs listening to this saying, I don't have the time to that. So now the counter would be, though, is there any shortcut? I mean, is there a shortcut to collecting good data or is it time intensive? Um, There's not a shortcut. Um, People are out there who try to, you know, pitch shortcuts. Uh, a lot of people say that modeling is a solution. They're going to look at uh, facilities based on their age groups. Uh, and that really, I mean, that would be like saying that you're going to look at people that way. You're going to say, you know, you're a silent generation, you're boomers, you're 
Generation mm-hmm. X, your Xennials, your Millennials, you can't uh, put a budget together with that broad of a brush. Uh, it's really very subjective, and those things don't always have that much in common. Uh, another shortcut that people propose is age-based assessments, uh, where they say that a, a steam boiler is going to last 20 years because Boma told them it's going to last 20 years. Well, mm-hmm. we know that's not realistic. We know that it matters how it was designed, how it was installed, how it's being maintained, and there's there's no substitute for talking to the person responsible to that for that year after year uh, and putting eyes on it and looking at the components that make up that system uh, and making an, eva- an evaluation. And um, there's, you know, there's, there's software that has canned responses, um, you know, where you plug something in and it tells you what you should do with it. Uh, but again, the software is a tool. You have to have that mechanic. You have to have that thinking mind. Um, there's no shortcuts. I'd say there's intelligent ways to phase this. Uh, and prioritize this. Uh, you know, maybe you have a five-year window that you want to get all the work done in, um, and you do twenty percent a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you learn from that first twenty percent. Maybe that's your pilot, and you uh, capitalize on that for year two, year three, and year and year five. It's not. It's not a process that. It's not a checkbox. It's a process. It's not a mm-hmm. task you complete. It's something that you do on an ongoing basis. You know, I know that everybody is under pressure to work faster, to get results more quickly. When I was in healthcare, that happened. When I'm on the consulting side now, everybody wants faster. I'm sure you deal with it faster and faster. Um, But is that, you know, when you're looking long-term, does that speed work against you? It can. I think that... You know, I always come back to momentum versus direction. Mm-hmm. If you've taken the time to establish your direction, and again, I'm going to come back to that pilot. If you've tested your process, then you can staff up around it. You can, you know, double team it. You can triple team it. Uh, you can bring people in to something that works. Uh, but going after something big and fast uh, can often lead to failure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other mistakes or missteps, Nick, that organizations make when they try to collect data? Do you see instances where data is misused or um, you know not collected? I, what What are some examples of that? I, I think one of the things that happens is that um, there's a, a temptation to pick up an RFP that someone used you know, on the other side of the huh. river. And that RFP was based on something someone did a state or two over. And that was written three or four years ago. And, you know, we, on one side of the table, you know, we complain about architects and engineers that recycle specifications. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of when you mentioned yeah. that. <laughs> this is the first so thing that came to mind. Recycle, I mean, if we recycle RFPs, do we really want work today that was, you know, specified five or 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. It does not reflect what the market is capable of. And, you know, I would say go out for qualifications and see where the market is, you know, get a sense of what can be accomplished um, and make it a conversation. Mm. Is there, um, do you see examples of data being misused? I see examples of data being 
I, I don't want to say misused because I don't think it's intentional. I mm-hmm. think misunderstood. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that's a much better term than misuse because sometimes misuse can imply intentionality. So I think when you have the roll up and you have the big numbers, you really have to have had the uh, the checks at the various levels to understand you know what's inside of that number. So first, when you use some tools, they're going to call for replacement of systems that simply don't need full replacement or aren't replaced that way. So someone might tell you that you need to replace the, the piping distribution in a hospital because it's 50 years old. Well, that's not practical. That's not how it's done. You know, you're going to replace it a room at a time as it fails, as you can open it, as you can get to it. You shouldn't have a number in your budget uh, for $2 million to replace water distribution. It's not feasible, practical, or necessary. So that's a way that data gets misused in terms of bringing that number up to the board when there's these small inflations along the way. Hmm. I think another way that data gets misused is when you you know are over reliant on modeling or benchmarking or grouping. You have to be specific about you know what is it we're trying to accomplish. Are we trying to accomplish master planning? You know, is this a, a hospital uh, sale or or uh, a transaction? We have to talk about are we talking about you know. Uh, an, an asset inventory so that we can really manage this? Are we going to tie it in with, with systems? We have to establish that level of detail first based on what we're trying to accomplish. So it's a matter of matching the level of detail to the goal. And if you, you have the wrong level of detail, I think that's when data gets misused. When you work with an organization, is your you, you go through the RFP process, but when you work with an organization, do you start, and this is more along kind of the process that you follow, do you start with a, a kickoff meeting at some point where you have the folks around the table and get their project goals and just listen to them? As, how do you begin? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we call that our orientation meeting. Okay. Uh, and that's about getting that big picture. You know, Here's what we're here to accomplish. We want to understand all of those goals, all those perspectives. And it goes back to the same advice I gave before about getting everyone in the room at the same time. Mm. Uh, you know, getting the financial people in the room, uh, getting the FM people in the room, getting the uh, software people in the room, because we can't make those decisions alone. So, you know, the orientation is about those goals, those big picture goals. Um, and that's really the the beginning. Uh, where there's work before that, which is really, you know, our homework. Uh, we call it our pre-assessment, where we're learning as much as we can uh, about that institution through data requests. How long did a typical orientation meeting, how long is that? I think those can generally go from, um, you know, 90 minutes to two hours. Uh, maybe some uh, follow-up or, or breakout, breakout groups uh, after that. So you're getting a lot of information in a rather relatively short period of time. Correct. Mm. You know, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, um, you know, starting the podcast here, but one of the difficulties that, facility professionals can make or can have when they interact with their leadership group is creating an effective business case. I mean, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the technical components, the technical knowledge was enough for a facility management professional. Now they have to have both the technical hat and the soft skill hat and the communication hat. And along part of parcel of communication is making an effective business case. It sounds like you're constantly creating business cases, compelling business cases to present to senior leadership. What best practices do you use? And, and what would you tell 
a facility management professional who's not really comfortable creating a business case and presenting why we need a new boiler, air handler, whatever it happens to be. What are some best practices to use to to represent to your senior leadership why and create that compelling business case? So the first thing that I would recommend is to have clear data, uh, clear defensible data uh, that may need a, a third party, but you want to have some backup so that it's not a, a desire, it's not a feeling, it's not a hunch. It's here's information that is leading me to this conclusion, and here's what I'm going to do about it. Um, following that, again, you said that you know maybe there was a time that it could just be technical. Uh, visualization is critical. Uh, you know, if you have staff or if you have vendors that can give you, uh, you know, Power BI or Tableau or something with a slider bar where you can actually show the rate of decay or you can show what an investment curve is going to look like for your facilities, not some abstract thing, but something that speaks to your actual position. Um, I think the, the rest of that would probably be soft skills, uh, mm. which are absolutely critical. Uh, the first thing is to focus on your audience, whether that's your board or your C-suite. I mean, these are people that you should know. Uh, you should know what their hot button issues are. Uh, and you have to, I think, understand that different people want different levels of detail. Some people are going to be satisfied with that one or two page executive summary. Uh, some folks are going to need, you know, information on every single asset. Some folks are going to want to get down into the, you know, this major system level. Some folks are going to want to get down into the component level. That's unlikely to happen uh, at the C-suite, but they need to understand that your folks have validated everything and that you agree with this information. Um, I would recommend not getting lost in the weeds. You have to stay mission focused. Um, don't say I, you know, this is not an I conversation. This is a we conversation. It has to be about the shared mission. Um, I do a lot of presentations. One of the things I try to make a, you know, a checklist of is learning types. Uh, so you're going to have visual learners. You're going to have auditory learners, uh, linguistic, kinesthetic people who want to touch things, you want to you know, pass something out that they can hold in their hands. Uh, hmm. mathematical people, people who need to see the math uh, to believe it and understand it. And, you know, that's how they learn is walking through the math. Uh, interpersonal people that want to have conversations about it and interpersonal people that want to have a chance to have reviewed it prior to the meeting so that they can reflect on it on their own. Um, I would say the, the last thing, the last tool at your disposal is comps. Uh, if you can get comps on what other people are spending, uh, what their risk load is, understanding your national and regional peers, uh, and then practice. Um, our group is number one for facilities management services by an AE firm uh, in the world. Uh, hmm. That's World Architecture 100. I know who number two is. I know who number three is. Uh, and if I'm going to be competing against them, you better believe I'm going to practice. Mm -hmm. It's about getting resources. Excellent. Great answer. I, I love the don't say I. Um makes a lot of sense but it's it's simple um don't say i do you do you see do you when you're out there in the field um dealing with organizations do you see a lot of i and i guess i asked that question not even relative to you know the solutions you provide the 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 fos i guess just in general do you see a lot of ego out there or is it is it more we than i what's your experience <sighs> that's a great question um I've met so many different facility managers um, and I think they all have different management styles mm -hmm. and they all have different uh, specific challenges that they're in, different environments that they're in. Um, 
I can tell you that East Coast managers are harder than uh, West Coast managers. You know, it's just a different mm. thing. And, you know, managers yep. in the middle of the country are uh, consensus builders. But that would all be, you know, lumping people into groups. That would be the same thing I said that you can't do about buildings. Um, there's really no one size fits all. Um, but I think that what's really interesting is that there's a next generation coming up. And I think that the appreciation and the uh, really uh, affinity for data and technology is only going to be exacerbated by that leadership transition that's coming. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there's future leaders to take over. That's, but that's a different issue at this point. The, uh, right. uh, the, the depth um, of skills needed and, and the people to fill them. But you talk about, um, you know, in the, in the, in the intro, you, you talk about your love, or we talked about your love for stats, for statistics and economics, sure. which is really interesting to me. How do you incorporate your love of stats and economics to the needs of your client? So for me, it's really about creating a closed system. So once you understand the built environment, you understand what the risks, the risks and the needs are. Once you have the data, you can build accurate predictions. You can build cost-benefit scenarios. And then lastly, there's a, a limit to that equation, which is the dollars. So that could be a fixed dollar amount, or that could be a, uh, a targeted goal or a performance goal. So once you have those three things, you can really start to work on that problem. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, typical combustion engine. You've got a cylinder, you've got two valves. So what do you have? You have the fuel-air mixture. That's going to tell you what your horsepower is. It's going to tell you what your exhaust is. Every engine has a different application. Every engine has a different performance level. And you can start tuning once you have that closed system. Once you have all those variables uh, to work with, you can look at the cylinders, you can look at the engines, and then you can start talking about the fleet. Interesting. Uh, just and just for intro sake, I'm, I'm speaking with Nicholas Durr. Nick Durr, Nick's the project development leader for the Facility Optimization Solutions, FOS, a subsidiary of Canon Design. Interesting um, conversation. And, and I agree with you. You know, you talked about typically your East Coast managers as opposed to your West Coast or Midwest. Uh, I feel the same way as you in our recruiting and search. I mean, that's part of what we look for or I look for because you're always looking for fit. One of the other uh, stereotypes, and I'm sure you've dealt with this or you deal with it, is relative to architects, right? Some architects are theory as opposed to the practical, right? They're, they're you know, it, it leads to look pretty and it's all theory. But you, how, do you still see yourself as an architect? And I don't mean that as a, you know, a put oh, you, you You combine everything. So in your mind, are you still an architect or have you transitioned on what are you? How do you see you? That's a great question. I didn't think you'd ask me that question. I, um, yeah, it was only because uh, I was just listening to you talk, and we've all—you're an architect, and we've all worked with architects. We've all been at those project meetings. We've seen the the butting of the heads, but you've really—you've you, expanded well beyond that. So I was just wondering, how do you see you? Like, how would you characterize what you are? Yeah, I've I've had the opportunity to sit at most spots at the table. Um, whether it's the, the construction side, the design side, um, and then as a, you know, an owner's representative. Um, I think I, I see myself as a solutions provider. Uh, mm. To me, it's about solving the puzzle, uh, using all of my skills and talents. I do think that this is an important thing that architects need to consider. Um, 
need to be thinking about. I think the the one of the a, a critical moment in my career was uh, taking a hospital down. It was the demolition of a hospital campus, taking it apart uh, mm-hmm. brick by brick, pulling the underground storage tanks, uh, you know, decommissioning the power plant, uh, and seeing that hospital. And I had tradesmen come up to me and say that they were born in that hospital, hmm. um, understanding that buildings are temporary. Every building has a different purpose, and every building has a different expectation and mission. And we have to look at those budgets. Um, should buildings be uh, beautiful? Absolutely. Should buildings be built on time? Absolutely. Should buildings last a long time? Yes. Uh, I think that um, for me, architecture is in all of these details. And a lot of architects are interested in uh, putting the building up uh, and then putting the next building up. And hmm. um, for me, the, the life cycle of the building, and there's, there's so much to be learned that has to go back into putting the next building up. And if we're going to walk away, the buildings aren't going to improve. That's an interesting, uh, interesting answer. And it's funny that you, you saw that, or, you know, you mentioned demoing a building. And I was just having a conversation with uh, a gentleman, uh, one of the candidates for um, a job we have. And we were talking about demo. And he was saying, to, he's in the process of demoing a building. And he was saying to me how, People think a demo is simple. I mean, that's then that's maybe a simple way for me to put it. But they don't look at all the details and the cost that can come with just demoing a building, and how he was presenting to his senior level leadership. Okay, this is why the cost is there. This is what demoing means. These are the issues we can run into. So something even as simple in concept as taking down a building has levels of detail that most people don't really think of if they're not involved in it. So I'd imagine your role you're constantly educating. And and pointing out pitfalls and just trying to, you know, open people's minds to the vastness of what you're un- over- undertaking. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably where I live. Yeah, yeah. Do you get tired? Do you, is it always fun for you? Do you, do you ever sit back and say, "Wow, I I can't do this again"? What 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 are you? How do you approach that? Um, I think I'm really lucky in that I have a lot of, a lot of support from my team. I work with a great team of people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so working with my colleagues is in, in of itself rewarding. So there's that as a, as a baseline. Um, I think all that time I spent in the field as a young person uh, sort of conditioned me that I just can't work at a desk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a cycle uh, in a normal year where I'll spend time on the road, uh, meeting new people, uh, looking at new problems. Uh, I'll spend time in the office, um, you know, uh, working with the team and looking at what we've learned and how do we make things better. Uh, so for me, it's sort of a a, a waxing and waning where there's hmm. there's a you know there's a recharge, uh, there's good support, uh, and there's new intellectual challenges. You know, to be to be frank and honest, uh, yeah. for me, this is about the, the intellectual challenge. I'm I'm too tall to be an astronaut, so. This is my second choice. <laughs> well, you, you made a good choice. So as we, uh, I'm speaking with Nick Durr. Two more questions as we come to the end of the, or approach the end of the High Reliability Podcast. I want to ask a question about the past and a question about the future. First, a question about the past. What was the genesis of, of the facility, optimation, uh, facility Optimization Solutions Group? How did it develop? How did it come to be? Sure. Um, it started, uh, I think, just around 2008 with my boss, Joe Casada. Uh, it was the 2008 recession, mm. um, and it really challenged us to think differently. 
by default, everyone needed to do more with less. And we knew that we needed to take care of what we already had uh, and spend smarter. Uh, so that's when we really stepped out of a traditional design thinking and looked at the software tools we needed to really crunch the data to justify. And I think if I could jump back to one of your earlier questions, you're talking about how do we relay information uh, to C-suites or to boards. It's giving people the backup, giving them the tools, giving them information to make confident decisions, to say, I had a limited amount of resources. Here's how I spent it. And I feel confident about that, that it's making a difference. Hmm. So being able to give people that confidence that they're doing the best they can with what they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, do you tip if you when you're trying to convince the C-suite, and whether this is you or just a director, how long do you think you have? Do you have a minute? Do you have two minutes? Like how long do you have to make that case? And and I guess I ask that because some of us are can provide too much information. Is it a minute? Is it two minutes? Is it 30 seconds? What's from your experiences? You know, how long do you really have to change minds and convince? Yeah. Um, I think generally you would probably get a 15 minute spot, mm-hmm. uh, but you would probably have less time to make your impression and like make your yeah. case. Yep. And there's an old rule of thumb. Um, I think it's called the 80, 10, 10 rule where, uh, 10% of the people, uh, immediately understand what you're saying and agree with you. Uh, 10% of the people, uh, immediately understand you and disagree with you. <laughs> Don't talk to those two people. You have to mm-hmm. talk to the other 80% because you're going to get enough with that 90% to get your point across. So if you spend too much of your time with people that are never going to agree with you, um, that's a waste. Yeah. Good, good rule. And what do you see, Nick, as the future relative to facility optimization solutions? I think that it's uh, really about technology. It's about data. Uh, it's about software tools. Um, you know, that's uh, total cost of ownership, that's digital twins, uh, BIM-based facilities management, CMS marketplaces. Uh, I think th- the tools are going to have to uh, continue to grow as the challenges continue to grow uh, and the, the labor resources continue to dwindle. Hmm. Technology, data, and software tools. So those are three things that you mentioned as to the future. You know that um, for many, not all, and it's probably generational too, but for many directors, managers, technology, data, and software tools weren't part of the package when they got, you know, when they got into this, this field. It's not what they signed up so, for. Exactly. Not what you signed up for. So what would you say, you know, for somebody who just heard that, they, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I'm not built to do that. What would you say to them? Can you avoid that, though? Can you avoid technology, data, and software tools and still be successful? I think that you could. Uh, I think that you'd have to have a small uh, footprint and a small team uh, and be very coordinated to do it. I think a Mm -hmm. better solution, a more practical solution, is to find the right tools. You need to find tools that are simple, uh, actionable, live, and easy um, hmm. I've seen way too many tools that are designed from one perspective. They're designed hmm. from a software company's perspective. They don't understand facilities. Uh, they don't understand how the parts, the pieces, the roles, the trades, the disciplines, the departments, they, they understand 
software. So they basically have built you a blender with 400 buttons. You don't need a blender with 400 buttons. You need one for milkshakes. You need one for mojitos. And you need one for crushing ice. You know mm-hmm. what you need. You have to find the tools in the marketplace that will support simple asset management. They're out there. Great answer. That that simplifies the technology, the data, and the software to need. How do um, I'm speaking with Nick Durr, project development leader for the Facility Optimization Solutions. How do people find out more information about the Facility Optimization Solutions Group? Uh, you can learn more by visiting our website. That's fosscd.com, F-O-S-C-D.com, or following FOSS of Canon Design on LinkedIn. Great. I appreciate your time, Nick. I thought this was a, this was a really interesting discussion. Uh, I'm glad we talked, and I appreciate your time. I very much enjoyed myself. Thank you so much, Peter. Excellent. So that was Nick Durr, Project Development Lead for the Facility Optimization Solutions, subsidiary of Canon Design. This is Peter Martin from Goslin Martin Associates. You've listened to the High Reliability Podcast. As always, I appreciate your time, and I thank you for listening. We'll be back again uh, in a couple of weeks with another podcast. Thank you so much and have a great day.